Good evening, everyone, and welcome to tonight's event with Colm Tabeen and Sean Hewitt. Thank you for being with us. This is the last event in our season before we take a short break for the summer, but what a treat we have in store tonight to tide us over until September. Colm Tabeen, of course, needs very little introduction. He's the author of 10 novels, including The Magician, winner of the Rathbones Folio Prize, The Master, winner of the Los Angeles Times Book Prize, and Brooklyn, winner of the Costa Book Award, as well as two short story collections and several books of criticism. He's the Irene and Sidney B. Silverman Professor of the Humanities at Columbia University in New York, and he's been named a laureate for Irish fiction in 2022 to 2024 by the Arts Council of Ireland. His latest book is A Guest at the Feast, a collection of essays that uncovers the place where life and fiction overlap, taking us from the streets of Buenos Aires to a deserted Venice during the COVID pandemic, and includes an extraordinary and intimate account of his cancer diagnosis. Colin will be in conversation this evening with the brilliant poet and writer Sean Hewitt. Sean is the author of All Down Darkness Wide, winner of the Rooney Prize for Irish Literature, and the poetry collection Tongues of Fire, winner of the Laurel Prize. As usual, our books are on sale this evening from our bookshop partner, Newham Books, and information about how to order those will be posted in the chat shortly. I'm going to hand over to our speakers very shortly to hear all about our guest at the feast. And please do remember that we'd love to hear from you this evening. There'll be time towards the end of the conversation to get to your questions. So please do post them in the Zoom Q&A box at any time during the event. Colm, Sean, welcome and over to you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jack. Okay, just the two of us. Um, <laughs> thank you very much for uh, taking the time to talk to me. I was just saying to Colin um, in the in the backstage of the chat that I've been listening to a guest at the feast on audiobook as well. So Colin's voice has been kind of running through my head now. I feel like I'm going to start talking like you soon. Um, I wanted to start off. It's, it's such a brilliant book, but I want to start off with. I guess at the feast, the title essay, because uh, I think it might be a good place to start. It has such a great opening line uh, that perhaps caught my attention because I also come from a place similar to this. But you begin with, there are no artists in Enniscorthy, but there were rumours and the odd mention of a writer and a painter who had been born in the town and left, uh, which I think is a really great way to uh, kind of introduce a place by who isn't there um, or, or what opportunities that kind of emptiness or blankness might might give to you and I wonder how that place became the beginnings for you as a writer what is it like to come from a place where perhaps other people haven't written about before or perhaps uh, isn't already kind of oversaturated with with writing in a way that perhaps Dublin might be um I suppose it was uh, the place was also a house and they, this was a semi-detached house, probably built in the 30s. We called a housing estate. And uh, my mother left school at 14 and she had written poetry before she married. And she was fascinated by poetry and she read poetry all her life. So that was there in the house. And strangely, you know, the, the Shakespeare, <laughs> I think the more remote place in English language countries, the more important Shakespeare becomes. And that a group, fit up group called, read by an actor called Anya McMaster, toured. And my mother saw all the Shakespeare plays in that way. It, it, the, the, the Othello she saw, in fact, had um, Harl Pinter as Iago because he was with that fit up group in those years in his own early 20s. So that was all talked about. My father had gone to university. There were two scholarships per county in those years when my father and my father got one of them and uh so he was the obviously the, obviously the first of his family to go to university so that idea in the house of learning of books and there was no sense ever that you needed to go into the world to make money or you, you needed to you know, but you wanted an indoor job an office job but actually what you wanted to be was a teacher and my two sisters became teachers my father was a teacher and being a teacher was the thing. And it wasn't just the long holidays. It was the actual the sense of something else as well. So all of that was there. Plus, I think for any writer, the idea of someone, there was my father's younger brother had died of tuberculosis in 1940. So I'm born in 55. His name is often mentioned. And it was always said that of all of them, he was the cleverest. They always said that my father was 
among his siblings was called Mick. You know, Mick couldn't hold a candle to Phil. And uh, Phil was dead. And um, Phil wrote poetry in Irish. And uh, so um, all of that was there in the house, sort of shadows, clues, little things. And it just gave you a sense that this was something that maybe you could do. Uh, that that you know it, it, you, you didn't feel it like that, but but it certainly wasn't something that would have been frowned on. I mean, the idea of writing would not have been frowned on or thought a waste of time. So it was a very literary house in that very small town, Irish way. Yeah, and it's interesting when you in in a guest at the feast, which is kind of an autobiography in in not in fragments would be the wrong word, uh, but in. Uh, almost visitations of memory that kind of flow through through the, the narrative. Um, and perhaps one of the questions I'd like to ask you is, is how you arrived at that way of writing. It was, was that something that just kind of um, appeared to you or is this an edited version of a longer uh, text? But one of the characters or, or the people uh, who comes across really vividly is, is your mother um, and your mother, particularly as a reader, um, but also as a, as a uh, kind of, she has a feisty uh, way of dealing with um, one of the brothers, uh, one of the um, brothers who teaches you, who, who puts you in the B class. Um, but I wonder if you can talk a little bit about your mum's reading. Um, there's a moment where you find McGahan's books and uh, Edna O'Brien's books, uh, band books at the time, in her uh, bedroom, is it, or, or, or up on a counter, um, and how that informed your way, not only of reading but of thinking about readers uh, and, and your own readers, uh, because your mum has this quite probably not an idiosyncratic way of reading, but just one that, as people who write, we don't necessarily come across so often, which is that she is quite. Um, uh she's not holding any classic writer up uh in ways that she doesn't need to you know she'll say no austin no but yes Saul bellow or you know and just following her taste so i wonder if, if you could talk a little bit about how witnessing someone like your mother read and the, and the things that she follows might have informed the way that you think about readers and and the, about yourself as a reader and the readers of your work yeah, I mean, I suppose I'm writing about her, I suppose, as a thing that almost every every writer wants, including poets, that which is an ordinary reader. The idea of outside the literary group, somebody somewhere in a library has found my book, is taking it down and has found a poem that matched them all on their own without any intermediate, with intermediate, with it being on courses or it, it being even in, a, in an anthology. It's just there. And my mother was one of those people who would go to the library and she would, uh, you know, she wasn't in a reading group. She wasn't part of a literary group and she would find things. Mm -hmm. And she loved Philip Larkin, for example, who she found. And she loved um, the Irish, of the Irish poets, Sean Dunn was the one that mattered to her because I think there was a, she was getting older and his sort of spiritual sense um, mattered to her. And I think the voice, but the, the, the big thing was Saul Bellow, you know, it was so unlikely that an Irish widow, you know, um, Catholic, you know, just loved him. And I said, well, is there not? She said, no, I love all those men. I think they're marvellous. And then she'd look at me. And the thing is, I, sometimes I felt that she was just a way of annoying me, you know, that um, I'd come home with some book I had written and I'd hand it to her and I'd, you know, be on the radio and stuff. And she'd come and say, I know, I, I think Sobel is great because he's so smart. I hate slow books. And you'd realize I had just written, of course, a slow book. <laughs> and so some of us was, but there were there were other parts that were very funny. There were, I mean, I, I could put, I should have put more into the book. There was a moment where my father was a teacher in a secondary school, Christian Brothers, and um, he had a colleague who was known to be very fierce and um, he hit my brother across the face. My mother just mentioned this because it was a normal thing. And my mother decided she wasn't having this. So she wrote him a vicious anonymous letter threatening him. And he showed it to my, to my father. Who's got this letter? And my father still didn't know who was behind it. Said, and he, he thought of a woman in the town who had written it. It was definitely her. My father came out and said to my mother, you know, it's 
funny anonymous letter came in and we think it's so-and-so. And I said, actually, I wrote it. I said nothing. So that, um, yeah, there were there were there was a lot of that sort of um, way of, of I suppose opposing authority in whatever mild way you could manage. But uh, but for me, but, but a lot of the, yeah, there was a lot of interest in new books, poetry. I mean, part of that comes down to the fact that in a in a small place, everyone knows each other, um, and I I wonder when when you were writing this essay. How much is it all in your memory, or did you have to go back and be prompted by ideas or, or research things? Or no, it, no, it's, no, it's uh, <laughs> unfortunately it's all in my memory. I don't have to go back and do anything. I have a funny memory. I, I suppose it couldn't be as good as I think it is, but I but I do remember. You, you know, the thing about a small house and being the fourth in a family of five is that you learn certain things, which is a lot of the time, no one will let you speak. <laughs> the others are busy speaking. And so you're always quietly trying to see if there's something you, you could, you, you know, well, you tend to watch. And there's also because it was a small town, there was an extended family on both sides. I Meaning there were aunts and uncles in the house all the time. They would open the door. They would knock on the door. They just come in. And so even though it was a small house, it was, it was, there was an awful lot going on and you could hear a lot. And so I could take you through house after house after house in Enniscorthing. And I could tell you something about something that had happened in that house. And I wouldn't be wrong. That sounds like the perfect place to be as a novelist. Someone can, that can be quiet and observe. And also, and I think in, in being quiet, I think I was quite a quiet child as well. And you gain a lot of secrets as a quiet child, not only your own secrets, but other people's secrets as well, because they kind of, if you're good enough, they can kind of forget that you're, you're there. Um, and then you, you gain this kind of authority. Um, yeah, of course. I, I think the other thing that happens is besides the fact of knowing everyone and that sort of in, in, in close community is that you begin to see how sons look like their fathers. And then as you get older, you begin to see a kid on the street and you realize, well, that has to be one of the Nolans because like, look, look at them. And then, you know, in the graveyard, you know where the graves are. You could say, well, that's where the Sheehan's are buried, just there. No, Mrs. Sheehan is actually over there. And, and, and the whole sense of the graveyard as a repository, uh, as, as a place that, you know, that, that you, you even know um, some graves have room for three, others room for five. You get to know, oh, there's one more room for one more in that grave. Oh, look, so-and-so is there. And so that, that business, I suppose, the, I suppose the routine or the, the, the sort of round of birth into death becomes something that you actually watch being enacted in front of you, watching the son or the daughter on the street and going to the funeral and realizing, oh, it's that grave she'll be in. Oh, because that grave is full. Oh, that's where her cousin is. Oh, look, that, oh, I didn't. And so in Esquadri, I walk down through the middle of the graveyard and I know every single person because some of those graves are fresh, as it were, and, oh, God, that's, you know, and you see, you see what year, the, the, you know, and so, so, so you sort of live with all of that as a sort of, as a sort of round. Yeah, I mean, it, you say in the book that it can provoke a, a sort of nihilism, I don't know if that's a word you use, in, in seeing a constant cycle of, of birth and death within a small place, as if everyone is making the rounds of the village and ended up in, in the graveyard. Um, I want to come back to the, you know, the idea not only of your uncle being a writer um, and that idea of seeing it as something that's possible uh, behind you, but this is, um, I don't know, do you know Tony Walsh, um, the activist and, and DJ? And of a couple of years ago, Tony had sent me a PDF of the speech that you gave when the Irish Queer Archive was donated to the National Library of Ireland. And in that speech, you'd also talked about a different sort of um, uh, relationship with, um, you know, whisp whispered uh, conversations about perhaps someone will come up to you and say, well, your uncle lived with a man or, you know, or, you know, the nurse of uh, the 
gave that was there when you were born you know she had a lovely friend and they moved to Brighton or something um and the way in which there's a kind of relationship between openness and secrecy there um and once you hook into uh the fact that you had a forebear or that there's someone else like you um there's an oddly freeing thing because you feel like perhaps you belong and a lot of these essays seem to to me to be hinged on an idea of secrecy or hiddenness and openness not only in terms of sexuality but in terms of institutions and history um i wonder if you could speak a little bit about hidden things oh my video is just gone off about hidden things um and, and about why as a writer you might find yourself attracted to uncovering these hidden things um whether yeah. it's in terms of yeah. um personal history or, or national history there's a there's a joke um in one of my novels where someone is trying to describe trying to come out to his parents and he says it's really difficult because my heterosexual um brothers and siblings have not yet told my parents that they're straight and um you know <laughs> the I, so that people just didn't talk about sex but they really didn't talk about homosexuality. Um, I, I went to boarding school, St. Peter's College in Wexford Diocesan School in 1970. And it was a funny time because the priests spent their summer holidays in America, the teaching priests. And they were coming back with all the new ideas, um, civil rights movement and the greening, we'll call the greening of America. And everything was open for debate. I mean, really everything from church-state relations, contraception, abortion, divorce, um, but the, the homosexuality was un, simply unmentionable. It, it wasn't that it, <clears throat> it was forbidden. Of course it was forbidden, but it wasn't to be mentioned. Mm -hmm. And boys, we ourselves did not mention it among ourselves. So it was simply, the idea was completely invisible. There was no mirror. There was no image. And the only image, in fact, was Oscar Wilde. And mm -hmm. the second image, perhaps, was Michal MacLeamore, who at the time was an actor ran the gate theatre with his partner, Hilton Edwards, and they somehow, they had escaped whatever problems there were for gay people, I suppose, by being so grand and so talented. But that after that, there was no one, and literally no one. So when you're talking about those books on my mother's wardrobe, the band books, they're Edna O'Brien, they're John McGahern, they're John Updike, but they're not John Broderick, who is yeah. a gay writer, you know, who's who could easily have been there, but in other words, what, what happened with his book, with his first novel, The Pilgrimage, which has two or three gay, gay characters, quite, you know, it's, it's, it's quite an interesting gay book about family, was that that book was not only banned, it was ignored. And when the ban was lifted, bans were lifted, that book, the ban on that was, oddly enough, it was not reissued, uh, as though somehow that had to be written out of the picture. And the mm -hmm. same thing happened with, you know, with Broderick, it was one of those figures who just got written out of history. And, um, but you learned then that there's a dotted line to the gay past. And um, it's a strange one. And, and I mean, someone like Tony Walsh has been doing a huge amount of research on, you know, just how much or how little gay life there was and, and how things worked. And of course you read about gay, if you wanted to do the research, the best way to do it was to, to go to court cases. Yeah. So we're looking at criminality, criminalization, and um, accusation. But to find anything that was normal uh, and that was stable and that was accepted was, was very hard work. But it was actually, the problem was it was there, but it was utterly invisible. And so I suppose if you're a writer, a gay writer in Ireland, you learn a lot about how, how about self-suppression about um, how easy it is to make images in, in, in which much is as much concealed as disclosed, even, even images that don't include homosexuality. You just learn that that idea of image making it is actually, it's not exactly as dangerous, but it, but, it, but, it, but, it, but it is not simple. And it includes, I think, concealment. I mean, I mean one of the, for example, how come, no serious gay critic has written a serious book about Ulysses. Because if you're teaching Ulysses now with, with students, they just keep saying, hold on, he's cruising. 
like, oh God, like, like when he talks about Hellenism, when Buck Mulligan, the old, like, that's not just a code or a clue. This is open, you know. Yeah. And um, the moment where Bloom at nighttime, where, where he holds Stephen and wants to take him home, like, like it's not that it's the only way of reading the book, but it certainly is there in the book. It's, I mean, it's, it's in plain sight. I mean, that's just one example of the ways in which um, we, um, we learn to, I suppose, misread, you know, and, and we learn to then start reading to find concealments in the text, as in concealments in a bar, concealments in a family, concealments in the street. And Dublin's particularly good for concealment because you could bring somebody, I don't know if it's so true now, but it was certainly true 10 years ago, you could bring someone from one end of the city to the other and they could say to you, there's no gay, there are no gay people in Dublin. How come we haven't seen a single gay person? I said, you don't understand, we've passed many. And yeah. I nodded or did something funny with my hand or just with my, you know, but they just don't, they, they, you know, they, they are, they have worked out ways of passing. Yeah. And if you've been in long enough, then you know them all already. So, <laughs> so you, can, you, you know who's who. Um, when you said, look at the court cases, you, you made me think of, you know, the court case that you write about in, in um, I guess, at the Feast in, a, in an essay called A Brush with the Law. Um, and... One of the things, that, and this is an, a question that I perhaps uh, am, am stupid for asking, but um, this is before the decriminalization of, of homosexuality in Ireland. Um, and how was it to be a writer or a journalist covering issues of, of gay rights and, and gay life? in Ireland at a time when it was also criminal to, to, to have gay sex? Well, you know, what, what sort of position was that to be in? Um, no one cared about the criminality. The cops had stopped bothering people. Um, and th there were really very few arrests after some time in the 1960s. Yeah. So that when I came to Dublin in 1972, um, there, there were two gay bars, um, Barty Dunn's and the front room of Rice's. And the, the, a few gay clubs began and closed and began. Um, later, um, there were gay saunas, there were quite a number of them. And so there was quite a lot of busy gay life that went on in the city that was both invisible and in plain sight. Nobody bothered, the crimin, the criminal thing didn't bother anyone then. And, and that's odd because it, historians might think, oh, they lived under the shadow of criminality. That, that just wasn't true. It was almost the same way as there was a sort of bohemian class in, in the city who lived outside the general, I suppose, set of restrictions that were there. And it could, you could live as though they didn't affect you. Mm. And um, but David Norris decided that he had enough of this and that, that this was a sort of hypocrisy having these laws on it. And, and they really were damaging. And that he he brought the case. The interesting thing was that um, this was you know I, I went down there and there were no journalists there. There was a single stenographer, and, and the newspapers were taking their reports from that. I, I thought that was an extraordinary. The Irish Times didn't have somebody reporting on this. RTE didn't, but they didn't. And um, so the, um, I mean, the story is that they, David Norris lost his case um, in the High Court, appealed to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court judgment is the, one of the lowest moments. And it's not just because I'm gay, I'm saying it's one of the lowest moments in the history of the Irish Supreme Court. That has a lot of very high moments, but this is a low one because the Chief Justice brought in evidence that had not been tested in court, that was, that was more or less hearsay evidence about how homosexuals spread disease and, and brought it in as evidence. And um, it was a 3-2 decision. And was, it was unlucky in a way, you know, 3-2 could have gone either way, but it didn't. And um, the, um, this, the, one, of the, one of the judges who agreed with the Chief Justice um, was, was later on himself made Chief Justice. And David Norris then went to, went to Europe. Um, Mary Robinson told me a marvelous story that the, after the case was heard in the European Court of Human Rights, one of the judges said to her, it was lovely seeing the paint of David Norris and his boyfriend, his partner, it was Nick Robinson, you know, was sitting with him. And they both looked like two marvelous Trinity gents, you know, Trinity 
boys with their beards and their suits. Um, and um, then it took the Irish government a few years to um, change the law. But uh, there, there was in some way a thriving gay scene in Ireland anyway. And there were also, of course, a number of su superb activists yeah. who, you know, outside the David Norris, which was a very individual thing, what he did, but people, people like Tony Walsh um, were, were actually there all the time, um, sort of um, creating an atmosphere that's saying that this, this, this sort of repression is intolerable, even though, as I say, it didn't affect you in your daily life. In other words, if, if you thought you were going out tonight, you didn't think oh, I'll be arrested. I have my name in the paper. You didn't have that. When you were, when you became a journalist, or when you were working as a journalist, I don't know how how you would like to to say it. Um, how did that change your relationship to politics? There's a there's a, a, a long thread in all of these essays about the relationship between, as you say, poetics and politics, uh, or as Jack I think said in the introduction, fact and fiction, um, and maybe they're not uh, the same categories, but um, when you were writing journalism or, or where you continue to write journalism as, as you have in this book, there are three or four essays in the second section that are, um, you're wearing the hat of a, a cultural critic perhaps, uh, or, or as an engaged citizen uh, writer. Um, how does adopting that role differ uh, from the other roles you take on? You know. One of the things that stood out to me in these essays is that they seem to have uh, a sense of uncertainty that is upheld or, or an ambivalence uh, to them that you allow um, to, to sit there. Um, and occasionally you might even change your mind within one essay, uh, or I suspect that some of the essays were chosen to, to show how different ideas have, have developed as, as we move through them. So we also get a sense of a change of your thinking, perhaps, over some of them. I wonder, does the essay itself um, or, or the work of journalism come under a different pressure to be certain? And how do you evade that pressure, um, which you do very successfully sometimes? Um, I, you know, I'm very susceptible to any atmosphere where, where I am. Um, so that I worked first for In Dublin magazine, which was, um, you know, some people were really committed. People like Fintan O'Toole were working there, Mary Raftery were working there. They, they later became sort of what well, they were at the time even. But I, I, I got interested in the possibility of change in Ireland by just talking to them. But I never really was as convinced, uh, convinced fully that, you know, I just thought the public realm in Ireland was, was really an impossible place. And for people to, you know, they didn't just oppose, look, they didn't just oppose condoms, they opposed bus lanes. And try and get them to think about bus lanes, like the bus, you know, buses. I just say, well, no, you know, like it wasn't an easy place in the 70s to talk about any sort of reform. Mm -hmm. And then I went to work for the magazine McGill, which was owned by Vincent Brown, who was a pioneering journalist, who was an idealist, who was someone who believed, literally believed that journalist's job was to, you know, make, make politicians accountable for. And I sometimes just laugh out loud at some things that he thought we could change as journalists. You know, I just didn't think we could. But the place that I think I really felt most at home, um, I mean, besides in Dublin, which was a lot of fun, was um, the London Review of Books. And that the whole idea there of skepticism, of uncertainty, of, of being in two minds, of arguing with yourself, of writing a piece that was five or six thousand words long in which you were not, you know, just just simply uh, coming in with a view, telling everyone, all, tell everyone, telling everyone all about it and you know, proving it how right it was. Like that, that, that would be laughed at. That would be considered like uh, as a cast of. So it was about a cast of mind, and you know, in, in a way. I, even though I, at the beginning, I didn't know Mary Kay Wilmers, you know, who was the editor, but I learned to know her by little things she would write on the side or little things she would just say, well, maybe we cut this. And um, so, I, I mean, I worked with her over a very long period of time, and, you know, and with Andrew Hagen and with other people who were in the paper. And I just, that, with that particular cast of mind, gave me a lot, uh, nourished me. It wasn't as though I came to the paper with it. 
which was that I adapted, I moved, it became a way of seeing things. And um, it's been incredibly useful. Um, and um, it's also kept me off the streets. You know, in other words, if you have, if you're, that there's nothing, um, the thing that's they most contempt for is a non-deliverer. And they even use the word, you know, that guy, he's a non-deliverer. And you hate being a non-deliverer. And uh, therefore, in order to deliver, I mean, you, you really have to stay home. And uh, you have to really get involved with, 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 with the sort of arguments you're making with yourself. And that rescued me in a way. It rescued me from random reading. It rescued me from pure laziness. It rescued me from drinking too much, from staying in bed and hanging out. It rescued me from all those things where I just became interested in, in reading and thinking which was something that I have to say, I, it wasn't natural. I mean, it wasn't something that would, was always going to happen. Uh, you know, I could easily, there's a pub in Dublin called Grogan's. I often pass it if I'm coming off from somewhere and I look at it and think, God, I'd love to be in there. But I haven't been in there for years. Yeah. I, don't, I don't think it's changed that much on the inside. Apart from they now have, uh, you can pay by cart, which you didn't used to be able to. They used to have a cash point right. in the pub. And they used to send you to the cash point and, and then you could pay. Um, how did you go about choosing the essays for, for this book? It did, what was the process? Because you've written many more essays for the LRB than are in this book. So what was the process like? What were you thinking when you... Um, if anything was boring, it just didn't get in. Uh, there was a piece I wrote for the, for the New Yorker years ago about the decline of the Catholic Church in Ireland, the, the Bishop Casey case and the, and the Father Smith, Brendan Smith case. And um, I always thought that piece would have to go into a book at some point. And when I read it for this book, it just didn't work. Too much detail, locked into its moment. Um, it just wasn't going to happen. And it was lovely to think that's not going into this book. So the, the rule was, and in the Guest of the Feast pieces, the rule was, there were many others of those pieces. If it's just, if there's something wrong with it, if, if it's, sometimes things are tied to their time, tied to their moment, and they're just not going to work. So I would read them. Just, I was simple. And if it would bore me, I thought, well, if they bore, I wrote, I wrote the thing and it bores me. Um, how will I am going to you know, voice this on the unsuspecting public? So really it was about that. It was just, if it's boring out, if, if, if I think it might do something still now in. It was just, it was just that. Hmm. There's so many echoes that go between all the pieces as well um, that makes them seem at least like they were very carefully plotted uh, as you go, even ending in Venice in lockdown. Uh, you... So, so the scene of filling uh, the title of that is it alone in Venice? Yeah, yeah, alone in Venice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Is is being in Venice alone in October? Was it of twenty twenty? Um, and looking at the paintings, and finally having this space and quiet uh, to look at paintings. But what you also encounter is darkness. Um, the the bad lighting of the paintings, and um, you quote a. Uh, a critic who talks about an aesthetic of darkness. Um, and it seemed to me to be such a good way of tying up or crystallizing some of the things that you've been thinking about in all of these essays, which is peering into the darkness, having your kind of senses honed onto what's hidden or what's not quite obvious on the first take uh, and looking closer. Um, one of the things that is a persistent concern in the book is homosexuality, the Catholic Church, and then clerical abuse uh, in the church. And, and there's um, three or four essays in the middle of the book that, that discuss that. And one of the ideas that I was just kind of fascinated by, um, you wrote about um, the calling to become a priest or, or a member of the, the clergy as being in some way akin or easily um, misidentified as the awareness of homosexuality in a person. Uh, so one might be aware that they are not attracted to women and so celibacy in the, in the church doesn't seem like too big an, option, uh, uh, an obstacle. But one of the other things you, you said is that um, 
And it reminded me of, I don't know if you ever read Walt Odette's book, uh, Out of the Shadows. Um, no, it's, it's fascinating. I think you'd, you'd really enjoy it. Um, he's a psychoanalyst, uh, I think based in California. I'm not so sure. Um, but he, he has this idea that gay people are um, more aware of their internal worlds because they see the difference between themselves and the external world. Whereas uh, I think he says straight men don't see that difference. So they don't necessarily see the boundary between themselves and the world so so heavily. So it doesn't send them in inwards or introverted. And I think you had a similar idea, the idea of um, an awareness of homosexuality as being something that sends one into solitary thinking or, or uh, self-awareness um, that might in some ways feel like a calling uh, or uh, a push towards uh, seeking some sort of spiritual connection uh, with, with something. I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about that idea. I think it's a really fascinating one. It was, um, I, I mean, it was in the London Review of Books I could do this because I had the space where I could try and make the argument at some length because it's it it's it requires a lot of work. So the problem I had was that um, in St. Peter's, I was just there for two years. So I was there between the ages of 15 and 17. It's a diocesan school with a seminary attached. So out of that period, I probably knew five, maybe six men who became priests and were later um, abusers. Mm. And I had to think, what? What does that mean? What did it look like then? Was there a clue? How was it known? And one of the things that occurred to me was they entered the priesthood in all sincerity and seriousness. And it was lonely. They were homosexual. They were in a boarding, they were running a boarding, one of them running a boarding school of 300 boys. Like one year going to the next year, I've discovered one with one priest because I could do the dates. He was friendly with a group of us. A lot of my friends were doing honours physics and he was really pushing them towards getting honours. He was really working with them. And uh, he, he was close to us all and we were friends with him. And it was the following year after we left that his abuse resumes. Mm. And I thought, I know that winter where all the boys he would normally be looking after and, you know, and we'd go up to his room would use his telephone, use his stereo, eat sweets. You know, it's, it's all sounded like grooming. It wasn't grooming. It, it was th 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 that he was a really devoted teacher, but he was gay and it was hard. And um, of course, he, he, he also, the church gave him such power, such authority, a feeling that he was invulnerable, that he could do whatever he liked. And he didn't pick on honors physics students. He picked on poor fellows who, you know, were from maybe further out the country than some of us, I was from the town. And he picked on fellows who were in the B class. You know, so that there, you know, it isn't as though this was a good man doing his best. It wasn't like that. But the, but the point you're making at the beginning is that, that, yeah, that at 15 or 16, you stop taking the world, if you're gay, you stop taking the world for granted. You watch everything. You, you're with your friends. They have a sense they're you're with your male friends if they're straight, that they're going to go on to live the same sort of lives as their fathers lived, or as being as in advertising on TV, everything is going to suggest that love leads to marriage and marriage leads to children, and that, that they, they, will, they will be the head of a household. And you are watching, thinking, I won't be. What will I be? I don't know what I'll be. And then everything you see, you think that's not going to include me. And that that not only um, is, is a way of looking outwards, but it becomes a way of looking inwards that, 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 that I suppose that sense of not taking the world at its face value mm. then means that you're somehow more yourself when you're alone. Mm. And th that solitude gives you a sort of, um, I suppose, a, a, an introspection that can lead anywhere, including into a great sense, especially around 17 or 18, of spirituality, of, of somehow or other getting a sense of you as a solitary figure, as a soul connected to something much larger than society or siblings or ch children, something huge, much larger 
but in any case, whatever it is, it led men into the priesthood. Mm. And they entered into in all sincerity. And in my reading of the story, it um, they managed to get through their 20s without abusing anybody. That it starts later. Mm. And um, they, they obviously, you know, as I say, did, did immense damage. I mean, just reading the accounts of um, boys in their, you know, years later describing what the 20, 30 years had been like in their marriages, say, for example, how and their work. But um, the, um, I was trying to make sense of something that seemed, uh, everyone was looking at it, I suppose. It was generally, you know, these people were just simply criminals and, and they were um, perverts and they were abusers and they should be put away. I was just saying, well, I'm not de denying any of that, but I'm saying that actually, how did that occur? What was it quick? Was it slow? Was it gradual? Was it natural? I mean, was it inevitable? Like, what, like, what was it? So I was just trying to investigate that. And I was trying to say also that in 1971, so halfway through that time at St. Peter's, I had stayed behind at Easter uh, for what was called a vocations workshop. And if I had been pushed the right way, I have to say my mother thought it was the funniest idea of column as a priest. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> just not not to be even you know, considered except great laughter um so you know if but if i'd had a different sort of mother who would have you know said well you know this would be the thing would make me happiest uh, things could have been different and um but um so i was i was trying to write about that but those seem as well to be um things that could make you a a very good novelist as well. Um, you know, that, that and, and particularly a novelist who might look to other real uh, characters uh, or figures, Thomas Mann or uh, Henry James, and try to understand the subtleties, the light and shade of uh, things that they hide, things that they might not even think for themselves, uh, but they, um, they are uh, being. Uh, it seems like that sort of cast of mind might have informed the way in which you kind of look to novelize uh, and investigate these people who, who live in secretive or hidden ways, perhaps ways hidden even to themselves. Um, I wonder if that's a fair kind of way yeah. of thinking. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, I mean, I, I think you become interested. I became fascinated by the idea of Henry James as a gay writer or as yeah. a gay man or as a homosexual. Um, Thomas Mann was similar because he wrote Death in Venice. So that, but in the case of both of them, at the time of their death, nothing much was really known about them. But then with letters and diaries and biographies and people who knew them. So great amount of information, so that you have this distance between, I suppose, the, um, the, the man at the platform, um, in the case of Thomas Mann, and the private man writing his diaries. And of course, the novel its form itself, it lends itself to that in the sense that, you know, it's, the novel form is very good at letting you see what someone is thinking. And then letting you see what someone is saying and the great distance between those two things can be really dramatized in a novel. It's one of the great things a novel can do that in a way drama can't do as easily or television or film. And, um, and so, yes, that idea that I was brought, I mean, I'm the second son in a family of five, but I was brought up, uh, sometimes it was a feeling, it was uh, later, I mean, thinking about it, it was, the, it was like being brought up in the 19th century in, yeah. in the, in the, in the way the extended family was used, the way Catholicism, the way authority, and um, not having a telephone in the house, not having a television until later. But in any case, I was interested in that dotted line that brought you back to saying two of the great figures in the development of the novel were homosexual men who lived partly in the closet and oddly enough, sometimes in the light. And that is the most fascinating idea. And what was that like? Not like the, my aim was to create an illusion that you're in the room with them, just to see what was that like mm. to them there and then, 
and that became an obsession in, 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 in both of those cases. And also the huge amount of information you have in both cases because of the diaries, the letters, and the novels. So, so you can really have enough images to work from. And yeah. um, so that interested me. But I, I feel there's one book missing, which is the sort of um, the account of what happened in my time. I mean, from 1970 until, until now, until, the, say, the gay marriage, Law and so I'm going to have to really tackle that business of of the um the actual bring it up to date in some way to you know to see what it was actually like. So I'm wow. probably working on that now. If I could just settle down and then stop talking. That sounds like a book I can't wait to read, uh, and one that is I think you're right missing. Um, and I, and I would love to read it. Um, okay, I'm going to start taking some audience questions. Um, I. Can't see the names of the people who have asked these questions, so I apologize to the people who have um, asked them, but I will pitch them to Colin. Uh, one of these is kind of related to what we were just talking about, which is when did you discover gay literature and what effect did it have on you as a writer? Oh, I suppose um, it would be books like um, Giovanni's Room by James Baldwin. Um, but, but, but also a sort of undercurrent in a novel like James Baldwin's Go Tell It on the Mountain, where you feel that that young boy who's becoming a teenager in this religious household, there's something about him in the way he's watching the world. And I certainly, I know that I got that book for my 18th birthday. Mm -hmm. I probably have, still have that copy and I would have read it that summer. So, um, yeah, that. But but I also saw Michal McLeamore um, performing his Oscar Wilde show in Enniscorthy when I was younger, when I was about thirteen or fourteen, because he was considered such a great actor, with such a great voice that my uncle brought us all. We, we all went. The whole town went to see him, and he was doing his Oscar Wilde one man show. It's a very carefully written show, but nonetheless, there it was. It was it was open for us all to see if we only. It's amazing how the, how the the theatre can become quite a permissive. Space yeah. when done with a bit of camp and or a bit of uh, humor thrown in in, in ways. He, 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 I think it's, it's it's very difficult to explain to somebody now mm. that there was no pornography. Mm. That I mean, you just simply were brought up entirely without pornography, and uh, like that really, I think, really makes a difference between generations. Mm. I mean, there's there's a scene in. Um, Oh, I can't remember which of your which of the essays it is when you're um, in one of the perhaps the the Christian brother that you're talking about that used to let you into his room where the telephone was and the sweet mm -hmm. sauce. But when the wrestling scene from Women in Love oh, yeah. comes on the television, and I watched that scene, um, I have seen the film ages ago, and I remembered it being quite. Uh, I don't know how even to describe it, but it's about 10 minutes long. It's up on YouTube now. You can watch it. And, uh, and the most kind of incredible... Um, yeah, if it's on YouTube, please watch it because oh. it, we were, I was probably 16 years old and we watched the Late Late Show and the Priest. We were all in our pyjamas. And there's a film show, Barry Norman's show, comes on BBC and the Priest turns over to it just as, you know, and suddenly this, Alan, Alan, Alan Bates and um, who's the other guy? Um, even more beautiful. Who's that? Oliver Reed. That yeah, I, Oliver Reed. Yeah, and but the other one was if, if wasn't banned in Ireland, and and I don't think it was cut. And it's a Lindsay Anderson film set in a boarding a boys boarding school, and I travelled up. You were, I was meant to go to the Young Scientist exhibition in Dublin, and there was a special rate on the train, and uh, but I didn't go at that at all. I went in. I found the cinema. This I, I was. Probably sixteen, it's probably seventy-one. I found a cinema where if it was showing. It was that it was a cinema in Westland Row or Pierce in 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 Pierce Street, and uh, I was riveted by if um, by the sexualization of boarding school life because I just didn't know you could do that. It's amazing when you're um, when you don't have loads of access to those sort of images or stories, and I don't know what it's like growing up now but even you know when i was a teenager um i remember seeing an advert for broke that mountain in the paper and it must have been a couple of months before the film came out and i couldn't stop thinking about the idea that that was a real 
film and that someone was going to show it and that it might be on in the cinema and you could go and see it and, and it became like this thing because I don't think I'd ever seen two men kiss so like even just that moment uh, would have been kind of a bit mind-blowing to me um what I think about it been showing the women in love wrestling scene I might have had a heart attack um a heart attack is one is one way of describing it I think <laughs> um who's your favorite essays Oh, I suppose James Baldwin. Yeah. Um, and um, again, you notice in the essays, there, there, there's a Library of America book. It, it was published first as, as The Price of the Ticket, but it, it, the Library of America book includes more. So it's about a thousand pages of his essays. You notice in, in he, he doesn't manage to integrate his civil rights interest mm. uh, with, with his homosexuality until much later in his life. You know, it's, it's in the eighties when he's able to write about being gay. Earlier, he's implying, he's talking about uh, my children and stuff. But he's still, I think, in that way, being able to argue with himself, being able to uh, speak difficult truths. So, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, but I, th I think I think that that thousand-page book of Baldwin's um, has, yeah, I just love that book. The rest of your summer, whoever asked that question, go and read a uh, thousand pages of Baldwin's essays. And Marilyn Robinson, who you write really well, and I'm sorry we don't get to cover everything in the book, um, but you write really well about her essays and about religious, um, putting religion in its place, how to write a religious character. And that's a fascinating essay. Uh, for anyone that hasn't yet bought uh, a guess at the piece, um, I would recommend that one. Um, Okay, how do you deal with the tension in your writing, either when you're writing fact or fiction, uh, between taking us into the memory or the emotion without the prose becoming sentimental? Oh, it's, um, I mean, that's, <laughs> um, your job, just say in writing The Magician about Thomas Mann and The Master about Henry James, is your job is to create an illusion for the reader that they're in the room. You're not interested in knowledge. You're not interested in telling them. And then you wrote another book. And, but you have to do that sometimes, but you never know how much to do it or not do it. And you get it wrong. And then it's what you need to cut most before the book is published. So your job is to create illusion. And if you just work with that all the time, trying to be accurate emotionally, what would he have thought then? No, if, if he thought, no, his mother dies. So he, over the following weeks, he missed his mother. No, stop it. You want a more complex thought there. You want, you want even just a, blank, cut it, don't bring it in. The amount you leave out is, is as important, but also just every time you work, it's a constant business of erasing. Before even you write it sometimes, erase, erase, erase. You, you know, in other words, um, as he grew older, you know, nah, don't, don't, don't give us that. You go, he woke that morning feeling that he had not rested in the night. No, that's such a cliche. Oh, he not rested in the night. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, so you just go, he stopped drinking orange juice that season. I, I don't you, you know, just like come in with something. Or the, the doctor, the doctor told him he should drink less coffee. What do you do now? Like, you know, in other words, you're constantly working on what's, the most plausible, possible, and least sentimental thing this person might now do in this next paragraph. And often you want a paragraph sometimes that has no, doesn't do any plot work, doesn't do anything at all, but just has some sense. And a novel can is open to that of, I suppose, texture of some sort of thing that he, someone just looking out the window when he looked out the window he saw the swaying trees no he didn't see the swish shut up with your swaying trees or he know the dwindling light the dwindling stop dwindling light give up that nonsense what did he see he saw nothing much at all he just looked towards the window for a second suddenly it struck him as a stop stop writing it struck him you write that too much it occurred to him it struck him he knows get all those words out of your book so like, you're constantly involved in a battle with yourself to stop writing a lazy sentence with a lazy observation in it. and do you sorry i'm piggybacking on this question now but um do you do you write the lazy sentence and then rework no, the lazy no, sentence no, do you no, no you i mean you work <laughs> sentence by sentence. How do, how do the you hope, get it? The hope is 
if you don't write it, you know, like, don't write it. Um, because if you if you say, oh, I'll write it, I'll take it out later. It, it, that's stupid because you have to write as though you're not going to get a second chance. Mm. So you have to go at it as though, you know, uh, you know, as, 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 as a shortage of paper. And um, then you'll find also that you broke your own rules as a sentence. That's the worst sentence ever. You know, just you'll know to take it out. But no, the hope would be not to not to write it. So as you come to each sentence, you actually start this sifting, scrolling down business to get the one that is least untrue. Yeah. We were talking about John McGahan, who you also write about in this book. Uh, and I remember Frank... Chauvelin, um, who's uh, edited the letters of McGahan, saying that McGahan is almost purging his writing away. The more he gets towards the end of his career, the more obsessive he becomes with almost refining and refining and refining himself, tearing it all back uh, to get the um, the sentence that says enough without looking like it says too much you know this kind of clean um sentence that is almost unobtrusive as you read it it seems kind of natural perhaps as you read it um did you consider writing on john broderick um and uh if not why not um I have a, I write a blog for the Arts Council website because I'm um, laureate for Irish fiction. So part of my thing is every month I write a blog and my, my, the recent blog I've written, I think it's about 2000 words, is about John Broderick. Um, and um, there, there, there's, not an, there's not enough there for a novel. There, there, there's, there's a, it's, it's a terrible business what happened to him and to, also to Kate O'Brien, who was a lesbian novelist, that they both uh, found great comfort in drinking and the drinking really began to destroy them and they found being in Ireland very difficult and they went both went to provincial England of all the things to go uh, to go on your own to live in Bath thinking you're going to find good company uh, you know she she went to Haversham in, in Kent like they both suffered enormously in those years in England because nobody knew who they were and there was no literary company mm. and so they were stuck in these houses they bought with some books and um it's this, this Broderick story is too sad um, and it's too openly so for me to be able to do anything with. Mm. Which novel would you recommend by him? Because I was looking and there's, he actually is quite prolific. There's, a, there's quite a lot of yeah. novels. I, I mean, I think you have to read The Pilgrimage because it's his first novel. It comes between The Lonely Passion of Jesus Hearn by Brian Moore and the barracks by John McGarren. So it's, you know, if you see them as, as uh, all three together, it, it, it has a woman, a sensuous woman living in the Midlands. Um, and it has all the ingredients of the other books in a way, except that she has a, quite a lot of fun, but Mrs. Glynn, but um, I, 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 I don't think he's as interesting a stylist or as his characterization is, is as strong, but it is, it, 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 if it hadn't been banned in that year, I think it's 1962, it, it, it would have really made a difference to the society. And there's also another novel called The Trials of Father Dillingham, which is about four people living together, four adults living together um, in a house in Dublin, two of whom are, are a gay couple living in complete peace in Dublin. And again, that novel was completely ignored. You know, I was in Dublin, I was writing about books when it came out, I had, I had no memory of it. Um, and, uh, but I, I, if, if the pilgrimage had been allowed out, could have changed certain things in the not the literary landscape in Ireland, but actually the landscape in Ireland. Um, one for the reading list. I will I'll put it down. I don't know. Are they still in print? Yeah, yeah. The pilgrimages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Um, well, speaking of changing the literary landscape in Ireland, um, <laughs> I will say thank you very much uh, for taking the time. Uh, thank you to everyone for for joining this. Uh, hundreds of you uh, so it's really nice to see you all um and thanks for your questions and thanks to to jack and five by 15 for for hosting us and now um and sean, and sean thank you very much for taking time to do this i mean i know you've got better things to do no, not at all <laughs> okay.
Thank you both so much. That was fascinating. I could listen to you talk for many more hours. So thank you so much for being with us. And yes, please do get your copies of the books. There are details in the chat with information about how to order. Um, Fibre 15 is taking a short break over the summer, but we'll be back in September on Tuesday the 5th with Dr. Michael Mosley. Uh, and there'll be more information about our future events posted on our website very soon. So keep your eyes peeled. Sean, Colm, thank you again so much. Good night, thank everyone. Thank you. Good night. Good night. Thank you.